I just want to take a moment just to say how much uh, I thank God for you. Uh, you are a joy to serve with. And it's not just one month out of the year. Uh, I do appreciate, my family does appreciate the intentionality that you put into Pastor's Appreciation Month, but uh, really that, it's an all-year thing. You know, and we feel that, and we are thankful for you. We thank God for you. Uh, you know, my heart was just so happy to hear, even while we were away recently, my wife and I, just how so many of you cared for our kids while we're gone, brought over meals, and we're just overwhelmed with gratitude for you. So it, it really is a joy to serve here. So thank you uh, for making it a joy for us. Uh, I, I do want to briefly mention uh, what uh, Tom had, had uh, prayed for yesterday. We had uh, a funeral here. Uh, for uh, a young man named Conrad Burke, and I was contacted by the family on Thursday. Conrad was, uh, many of you may even know him, he, he was a, a kid from the community, plugged in, had, had root, deep roots here, uh, was only 26 years old, and uh, a rare form of sarcoma took his life, an aggressive form of cancer, only four months from the time of diagnosis to, to yesterday. And uh, he was a varsity lacrosse coach in the community, uh, teacher at John Jay. And this place was packed yesterday. Uh, just imagine, uh, it, the, the parking lot was full. There was nowhere to park. Uh, the, the line to greet the family was out the door into the parking lot. Uh, and the thing that encourages me the most and, and just gives me the most hope is, is the fact that all those people heard the gospel yesterday. All those people heard, there was, this whole section here was the lacrosse team, you know, and they heard the gospel yesterday. And, and so pray for those gospel seeds to take root in hearts and that people would uh, know the hope that there is to be had in Jesus. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was really special. Uh, we were mercifully spared uh, the, the uh, Hurricane Ian down in Florida. My wife and I, as you know, we're, I, I was supposed to be at a workshop on Sanibel Island, and our flights were, were canceled, obviously. Right? We were supposed to fly in Tuesday night, which is when the hurricane was hitting. So we, uh, we decided to call an audible. We stayed in Kansas City and actually drove north three hours to Ames, Iowa, where my uh, wife's aunt and uncle and cousin live, and we did a little uh, personal retreat up there. Uh, it was refreshing. It was good. We did do a fair amount of, of work and, and ministry work while we were there as well, uh, but we're happy to be back and thankful for that time away. All right, well, let's, let's get two things here. This morning, we're jumping back into John's gospel after taking a break for the summer, and as we come to chapter 8, I really, I feel a pastoral responsibility, really, to address an elephant in the room. This is going to be a bit of a different sermon than I'm used to preaching, so bear with me. I don't think I've ever quite preached a sermon like this before. But here's the issue. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and you'll notice that John chapter 8, actually the end of chapter 7 through 8, verse 11, it's bracketed off and includes a heading in all caps that reads, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 
to 8.11. Now some of you who are newer to the faith may find this strange and wonder, why is this passage even here? Or more seriously, one might question whether we can or even should trust the accuracy and the reliability of our Bibles. So I'm going to attempt to explain this a bit and then offer some guidance as to how we should treat a passage like this, and then I'll get to the sermon. How does that sound? Sounds like fun, right? I promise. I'm going to try really hard not to lose you in in some of this technical stuff. Uh, But first, you need to understand that the Bibles we have today, they were not beamed down from heaven or delivered on the wings of angels to some prophet in its entirety. 66 books bound in leather. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages. And yet, all these writings fit together to tell the unified epic story of God. And although, humanly speaking, it it was written down by men, it was also inspired directly by God himself so that exactly what God wanted to be communicated was written down. 2 Timothy 3.16 puts it this way, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And this is what the Fishkill Baptist Church Statement of Faith says about the Word of God. I put it on a slide here for you. We believe that the scriptures consisting of the Old and New Testaments are inspired Word of God, inerrant in the original writings, complete as the revelation of God. For, the salva- for salvation and for the supreme and final authority in all matters to which they speak. Notice this phrase, inerrant in the original writings. What's that all about? Well, this means that we believe the original documents of the scriptures are free from any type of error. Because if, if 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, then scripture, the scriptures are the words of a perfect God who makes no mistakes and who does not lie. And so we believe that those original documents are, in fact, inerrant. But here's the thing. We have no original copies no original writings, or as the scholars call them, uh, uh, autographs. Now, you might be getting a little uncomfortable at this point. How can we know what the originals say if we don't have any? Let me explain. While we don't have any original autographs, what we do have are nearly 6,000 copies, which makes the Bible the most historically supported ancient document in existence. And it's not even close. Not even close. The next closest ancient work is the Iliad by Homer. And remember the Bible, 6,000 copies. Homer, the next closest, 643. And very few scholars question the authenticity of that work. 
But not only does the New Testament have superior manuscript support by sheer volume, it also has more manuscript copies closer to the date of the original writings than any other historical document. One of the earliest undisputed manuscripts that we have is a fragment from John's Gospel that is dated as early as A.D. 117. And this makes it only about 25 years after the original was written. That might might sound to you like a lot of time. 25 years after it was written, that's the first copy we have. But again, the next closest pales in comparison to that. Homer, from Homer again, the gap between the earliest copies and the original. From Homer, not 25 years, 500 years. And very few scholars question the authenticity of that. The Bible is the most historically verifiable ancient document in existence, and it's not even close. And this means that the greater number of copies that we have and the closer they are to the original writing, the higher degree of confidence we can have that we actually know what the original document said. Now imagine I had up here a copy of just two letters. It's the same letter, two copies of the same letter. And as you examine them, you'll notice that uh, there's variants in different places, things that are different about the two. Now, how could you know which one is correct if you only had two? It'd be hard. <laughs> It'd be almost impossible, right? Which one is the correct one? It'd be very hard. But now imagine that you have 6,000 copies of that letter, and some of them varied in places. Well, you can compare them with all the other copies and discover pretty convincingly what the original actually said. And this is what we have with the New Testament. So this fact should give us such great confidence that the Bibles that we have today are so accurate, so accurate to the originals that it's almost as if we have the originals themselves. And because of this, any time there's a text that differs significantly enough with the other manuscripts, we know exactly where it is. It's no secret. A good modern translation will tell you this using a footnote or brackets like we see in John 8. And add to this the fact that none of these variants call into question any any core uh, doctrines of the Christian faith. And many of these variants are very insignificant. And I, I, I like when, when talking with a skeptic and they like to point out, well, we can't trust the Bible. There's so many errors in there, you know? And I like to say, oh, yeah, uh, would you mind showing me some? Because uh, oftentimes they're just regurgitating something they read on YouTube or Twitter or something, you know, uh, and they don't really know what they're talking about. Uh, and when they struggle to find, <laughs> to come up with an example, I'll say, I'll show you some. Here, let's sit down and look at the Bible together. Do you really think this is significant or not? In fact, we have such high degree of, of confidence uh, in our Bibles and the accuracy. So taking all this together, we should have great confidence. They're very accurate, very reliable, They're almost like having the original. And besides, it's probably a good thing that God in his wisdom uh, didn't allow us to have any original copies today because uh, someone would probably make it into an idol, right? 
and maybe build a theme park around it or something. Uh, you know, think about you know, that story in the Old Testament where God's people, they have the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark of the Covenant are the stone tablets that Moses got from the Lord on the mountain, right? Well, they treat it like a good luck charm, and they bring it out into battle. They're thinking, yeah, we got this. We have the, the stones, you know? And God judges them and allows them to be defeated by the Philistines, and the Philistines actually capture the Ark and take it away. You know, and God's like, I'll show you who's in charge here. You know, you don't use me like a good luck charm. You know, so it's probably a good thing we don't have any original uh, autographs because, again, we'd probably make an idol out of it. All right, now shifting gears slightly, you need to understand that the chapters and verses that we have in our Bibles are not original to the Bible. All right, Paul didn't write you know, and insert chapters and verses. In fact, the earliest cop, complete Bible uh, to use the chapters and verses that we have today is, is in something known as the Geneva Bible, and it was printed in 1560, okay? So before that, no chapters, no verses, uh, and it came about over a, a, a period of time. Chapters were put in first, and then verses came later, and there were a couple of different methods for doing that. But the one that we use today... Uh, is from the Geneva Bible. However, in the 462 years since the Geneva Bible, many more manuscript copies of the New Testament have been discovered by archaeologists. And these have helped us to better understand what the originals actually said. And this is where John uh, 8, 1-11 comes into question because this passage is not included in the earliest manuscripts. And in fact, it's not even found in a single manuscript dated before the 5th century. Okay, that's significant. And when it does appear in a manuscript, it appears in two different places in John. And there's actually a manuscript in which it appears in the Gospel of Luke. And the the stories uh, have variants even between themselves. Add to this the fact that not a single early church father even mentions this text in their commentaries on John. They go right from John 7.52 right to chapter 8, verse 12, without even skipping a beat. And, in fact, you can actually read your Bible that way. Go from John 7.52 and jump right to uh, 8.12, and it's very seamless, Right? And add to this fact that the language and the grammar in this story, in John 8, is very different from how John wrote. It uses grammar that John doesn't use. It uses uh, writing that is not uh, common to him. So it's highly unlikely that John wrote this. Now, one of the best New Testament scholars in the world, D.A. Carson concludes in his commentary on John, he says this, I have a slide for it. Despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. So to separate out this passage from the rest of the text is, is not really removing anything from the Bible. It's just become clear to us that it wasn't there in the first place. It's just that they were uh, never in those uh, original documents. And, and no one knew it at the time the Geneva Bible was printed because we didn't have all the, the new um, discoveries and manuscripts that we have today. 
And this is the reason, by the way, we, we covered this earlier. I didn't really spend as much time as I'm doing now, but this is the reason why John 5, verse 4 is missing in your Bible. Have you ever noticed that? Go to John chapter 5, verse 4, and you'll see that you go, it goes right from verse 3 uh, to verse 5. There's no verse 4 in there. Uh, and that's because of new uh, manuscript discoveries. It's, it's, it's been shown that that verse is very unlikely to have been in there. And, and no one's taking a verse out of the Bible, right? Remember, verses came later. Uh, and what a mess would it be if we just shifted all the numbers? It would goof everybody up, right? So we just kept it how it is, and the numbers are there so we don't goof everybody up. All right, so how are we to treat this text? Well, it's because it's probably not original, we should not give it the same weight and authority that we give the other scriptures. This means that we shouldn't use this text as a basis for any doctrine. But the good news is that this passage doesn't add anything that is not already somewhere in the Bible. It doesn't add any new teaching. It doesn't bring us anything new. It doesn't take away anything or contradict anything uh, anywhere else in the Bible. Now, it's possible that this is a true story. Many scholars believe that perhaps this even happened. And that the story got passed down through oral tradition and got inserted by a copyist later on. But because it's not original to John's gospel, it's my opinion that this passage should not be preached on its own as we could with other scriptures. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, and so forth. Paul says, preach the the word to Timothy. This means that we shouldn't preach things that are not the word. And if it's clear to us that this was not originally in John's gospel, we should not treat it as scripture and give it the weight that scripture has. But again, uh, it doesn't add or take anything away from the teaching of the Bible. And it could in fact be a true story that was uh, carried on in the oral tradition and put in later. And so I've decided that the way to address this text is that we're, we're going to look at it, and I'm going to be careful as we work through this text to bring in other texts from other places in the Bible that say the same thing, so that we're standing on the authority of Scripture uh, and, and not on the, on the authority of something that is not Scripture. Uh, you could consider it perhaps as a, a big illustration, right? Okay, so hopefully by this point you're not asleep. Anyone, you still with me? You guys are, you're with, all right, okay. You, class is not dismissed. We're going to actually get to a sermon here. Okay, so hopefully you're already with me in John 8. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find it on page uh, 1062. And I invite you to follow along with me as I read. Now, typically it's our practice to stand, right, in reverence for the Word of God. I'm not going to do that today because I don't think that this deserves that same treatment, okay? But follow along with me as I read. And we're going to be, I'm going to read John 8, 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we look at various places in your word this morning, as we open up your word, God, we pray that your word would open us up, that your word would open our hearts to behold the majesty of Jesus. And God, may we be transformed this morning by your mercy, by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I've already spoken at length about the authority and trustworthiness of the scriptures. Well, in this text, the clear authority of Jesus is on full display. And it's against this backdrop that I want to show you the great mercy of Jesus. My first point serves to highlight Jesus' mercy by providing a backdrop of no mercy. No mercy that comes from the scribes and the Pharisees. So that's our first point. No mercy. Here we see Jesus. He's teaching in the temple. And the religious rulers, they, they bring to him a woman caught in adultery. They point out that the law of Moses commands such women to be stoned to death. And they ask Jesus, what do you say? And verse 6 makes it really plain that this is a trap. This is a trap. They know that Jesus is compassionate. And if they can just get Jesus to advocate breaking the law of Moses, then they've got him. They've got him. They can accuse him of being a false teacher. They can get, get rid of him. And this is a common strategy. We see this in, from Jesus' opponents all over the place in the Gospels. Luke eleven fifty three to 54 says, he, he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. Just waiting, you know, per, that, that word provoke, right? Could you imagine just being followed around all day by people just trying to provoke you and try to get you to lose it and say something you shouldn't? Well, you didn't even crack under that. Luke 20, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies, right? They're getting crafty here who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So this is not, uh, again, anything new that we don't see anywhere else in, in the New Testament or in the Gospels. First, we see Jesus, he, he bends down and he writes something with his finger on the ground. Now, many, many people have speculated what it was that Jesus wrote. 
But the reality here is that no one knows. No one knows. And I don't think that we're meant to know. Otherwise, we would have been told, right? It could be that this is just a a dramatic pause. You know, he's just kind of buying time. It says that while he was doing this, they were continuing to ask him. Right? Maybe Jesus is just creating some tension while they wait for him to respond to their question. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Instead, he ignores their plan altogether. He doesn't address the law or the woman's situation. He tells them, he says, go ahead. Go ahead and stone her. But with one condition. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now this is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 17.7. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from among you. D.A. Carson points out here that, that Jesus is saying, is, is implying not, all, not that these people need to be in a state of sinless perfection to carry out the sentence. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that in order for them to carry out this sentence, they must not have had a hand in this particular sin. Now you know something's clearly shady because the law of Moses commands that both the man and the woman are to be stoned, but where's the man? Something shady's going on here. And Jesus is, is strongly implying that, hey, go ahead and stone her, so long as you didn't have anything to do with this. That's what he's saying. It's clear that the religious leaders are twisting. They're twisting the law and they're weaponizing it in order to cancel Jesus. They already tried this in John chapter 7 when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath They accused him of breaking the law then. And Jesus responded then in in chapter 7, 23 and 24, if on a Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a a man's whole body? Well, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is what's happening here too. The religious leaders are not judging with right judgment. They're legalists who show no mercy in order to assassinate the character of a threat to their political power. That's what's happening here. But the condition that Jesus lays out in John 8 sidesteps dealing with the law of Moses altogether, and it cuts through their deception to prick their consciences. He goes right to the heart Now Jesus, he gets down, he writes some more stuff on the ground. But again, that's not the point. Verse 9 says, they respond to what they heard. Not to what they saw written on the ground. They responded to what they heard. And their actions show that they've been convicted because they had some hand in this woman's circumstance. 
Now, some manuscripts include, right, we've been talking about manuscripts and variants all morning, right? Some manuscripts include here an additional text uh, that's not in your Bible. Uh, it just it reads this. It's, it, ins- it inserts it into verse 9, and it reads, But when they heard it, being, convinc- or being convicted by their consciences, that's the part that's inserted, when they heard it, being convicted by their consciences, they went away one by one. Here's a few takeaways for you here. First, you can't deceive Jesus. He knows your heart. He sees through your show. He sees through your masks. But secondly, we need to be careful, especially as religious people, that we don't become legalists ourselves, who use God's law to put others down and elevate ourselves to get the things we want, to get the recognition and the respect that we want. It could be that you want respect, so you legalistically assassinate someone else's character to make yourself look better than everyone else. You might be able to deceive others, but you won't deceive Jesus. This is the background of no mercy against which Jesus' abundant mercy will shine. That's the next point, abundant mercy. All the woman's accusers have walked away with their tails between their legs, licking their wounds after being exposed by Jesus. And now it's just her and Jesus standing there. Jesus is the only one there who could actually condemn her. But he doesn't. He says, neither do I condemn you. This shows Jesus' authority to forgive sin, an authority that that belongs only to God. I mean, a helpful way to understand this is perhaps to imagine uh, the the wife of the man this woman committed adultery with being there and, and overhearing Jesus forgiving this woman and thinking, who are you? Who are you to forgive this woman? She didn't sin against you, Right? I'm the other woman. I'm the, I'm the wife of this man. You know, if anyone needs to forgive her, it's me, right? What, do, what right do you have, Jesus, to forgive her sins? She didn't sin against you. But, but if, if Jesus is God, which he is, yes, her sin is an offense to God, and he does have the right to forgive it. And so his authority here as God is on full display because only Jesus can forgive it. And only Jesus can forgive it because he takes her sin upon himself. When he would go to the cross and die and pay for it, therefore he can forgive it. This woman was used by the religious leaders as a pawn. She was publicly disgraced, but Jesus covers her disgrace with his grace. He made each man there admit their sin by walking away. And instead of condemning this woman, he forgives her. You may know many people, they try to paint God as being like the religious leaders, a God who shows no mercy. They try to paint him as as a God who is just waiting for you to mess up so he can smite you. Right? Some people see God that way. 
And when you see God this way, it prevents you from coming to him. Because you fear that bringing your sin to Jesus and laying all your cards on the table will result in your condemnation. And perhaps you think that there's some sin in your life that's just so grievous that I can't let anyone know about this. I've got to bury this so deep down that no one ever finds out about this. Because not even God could forgive this. I don't know what that might be for you. I think if we're honest, we all have something like that, don't we? That you want to stuff down, you don't want anyone to ever know it, even your closest friends, because you fear that they might condemn you, that they might think differently of you. And we, we, we project that onto God, but we, we can't bring that to God because he might condemn us too. But John 17 tells us, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's the self-righteous who refuse to come to Jesus who will face condemnation. Verse 18 says, following that, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Your sin does not surprise Jesus. and He will never condemn those who come to him so long as you know your sin and you own it and you come to him for forgiveness. He will not turn you away. You can never out-sin the mercy of God. But this does not give you license to keep sinning. When you truly know the mercy of God, it transforms you. And this is my last point, transforming mercy. While Jesus does not condemn this woman, neither does he ignore her sin. He tells her to go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. This is very similar to what Jesus tells the paralyzed man in John chapter 5. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The only sane response to the mercies of God that forgives your sin is a changed life. That's the only sane response that there is. Forbid it that we keep on sinning deliberately The law has no power to change behavior because the law can only deal with actions, not the heart. Only the mercies of Jesus that forgives your sins can cut through to your heart and transform the way you live. Only the mercies of Jesus, only the grace of our Lord Jesus And this is how Paul explains it in his letter to Titus in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then he goes on to say in verse 12 that this same grace that saves us, this grace trains you to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The law doesn't do that. Grace does that. 
Grace does that. It's the grace of God that trains us, that motivates us to live godly lives. We don't change first and then God forgives you. That's backwards. He first showers you with his mercy and then we live for him because we love him. And we're thankful for what it is that he's done for us. In 1 John 4.19, John puts it very simply, we love because he first loved us. Not because he gave us more law, because he loved us. There's basically two kinds of people in this world. The self-righteous, who don't think they need God, or worse, think that they can use God. And the kind of person that feels the weight of their disgrace, who don't think they deserve mercy, they may think mercy is possible only after doing a lot of penance. If you tend to be more self-righteous, you need the gospel to remind you. You need the gospel to remind you that your sin is grievous. Oftentimes, the self-righteous tend to look down on other people. right? Even the church, we can get feisty with one another, right? And I'm sure there's someone in church that you're like, oh, they're not my favorite person, right? But think about this. Jesus died for that person. And Jesus did not condemn that person. And who are we to have higher standards than Jesus? Your sin is so grievous that the death of the perfect Son of God was required to pay for your sin. Repent and believe. That's for self-righteous people. If you tend to be the other person, if you view yourself more as a disgrace, then you need the gospel too. You need the gospel to remind you that Jesus won't stone you. So don't stone yourself. Repent. Trust Jesus to forgive you. His death and his resurrection are sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. So come to Jesus and let his abundant mercy wash over you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.